Today's sermon comes from Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cries of distress. No more shall shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord, and their descendants with them. For they call, or before they call, I will answer. While they were yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They should not hurt or destroy in any of my holy mountains. Pastor Matt shared this uh, experiment months ago when he was delivering a sermon. But it's, uh, it's compelling and it's eye-opening. They recruited a bunch of volunteers to walk a straight line through Germany's Beanwall Forest without technology. So just the volunteers, no technology, and they wanted to walk a straight line through the forest. Well, as they did, as the clouds would obstruct the sun, little errors got multiplied and small deviations became big deviations and, and these volunteers ended up just walking in circles. And no matter how long they, they walked, they just kept wandering and walking in, in circles. And, and, and what's compelling about this Story is even the the uh, the radius of the circle in which they walked was no more than like a hundred meters from their starting point. They didn't get past their starting point any greater than a hundred meters. And and so what's fascinating about it is when you take away the sun, that would be an external kind of cue that could guide you or lead you. If that's covered with clouds, if you don't have any technology. With no external cues, there was just a wandering in a circle. It very much speaks into where our world is today and where people are today. That without any external anchor to guide or to lead, to give a fixed point at which something is heading, we just circle. Right? So history seems to just be circling. I just heard repeats itself. And we find ourselves without any kind of anchor to root where we're headed or what we're about, we find ourselves wandering and circling about. This passage in Isaiah 65 is an anchor. It speaks about the new heavens and the new earth. It's an anchor of hope. The Bible speaks a lot about hope. When we talk about wandering and circling, and all this discussed in this passage, what anchors our souls is hope. The scriptures speak to this. 
Hebrews 6.19, we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Romans 8.24, for in his hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Isaiah 65 speaks of a future that we cannot see with a physical eye. When it speaks of a future hope, the new heavens and new earth, that is absolutely certain. When Romans 8 says we wait, that word wait means we it doesn't mean we're, we're wishful thinking, waiting, hoping something happens. It means we just wait knowing there is something certain that we're headed for. This is a passage about future hope that is an anchor for the soul. And not only just a general hope, but a specific kind of hope you're going to see. That it gives us in the midst of a fallen and a broken world and broken lives. So first, what kind of hope is the anchor for your soul? First, it's the hope of pain eclipsed by joy. Look at verse 18. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Now, the Hebrew language, which is the language of the Old Testament, uses a, a grammar style called apposition. And what that means is it, it's something that's used to identify two things very closely together, so much so that those two things are said to be the very same thing. So in verse 18, joy and gladness are an apposition to Jerusalem and people. Which means that Jerusalem is joy and people are gladness. One and the same. What this is speaking of is a new heavens and a new earth where only joy and gladness exist in such that a life and joy is one and the same. Verse 19. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. There's a world that God has created called the new, new heavens and new earth that will be a place of only joy and no pain. Now, that's hard to imagine, isn't it? Because our lives are, are full of pain to varying degrees all the time. I mean, we live in a broken world. And so pain is just the norm. It's the norm of life to varying degrees. And so when we hear about a world in which there's going to be no pain, it's hard to even fathom or get our minds and our hearts around it. What we forget is that pain doesn't belong in God's world. In Genesis 1 and 2, there was no pain. Pain entered the world in Genesis 3 as a result of the curse and the intrusion of sin. That's when pain entered the world. Genesis 3.16. So the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. 
In pain you shall bring forth children. And that's not just the birth, the birthing process. Those of you that are parents know the pain of raising children. Genesis 3.17, and to Adam he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Pain is in our world because of sin. But what we hear here in Isaiah 65 is that there's a world coming, a new heavens and a new earth, where there will be a rock or an ounce of pain. So pervasive, so pervasive will this joy be, this total and complete joy in the paradise of new heavens and new earth, that verse 17 says the former thing, that means the former things, the pain in this world, shall not be remembered or come into mind. Heaven will not be a place where we sit around and remember the pain of our past and receive consolation. Heaven will be a place where the joy is so pervasive and so total and so complete that there will be nothing that would trigger a memory of past pain. And we talk about PTSD in our world. Post-traumatic stress disorder. And, and all that means is that something in the present triggers painful trauma in the past, which produces anxiety or depression or sadness. What verse 17 says is there will be no PTSD in the new heavens and the new earth. Just total, complete, pervasive, eternal joy and delight. Now, we're talking about this as the hope that is the anchor for the soul. And specifically about pain being eclipsed by joy. The joy that God speaks of in these verses, this is so incredibly important to grasp. The joy that God speaks of in these verses is not a joy that comes as a result of the absence of painful circumstances. If you view new heavens and new earth as a place that will be joyful because nothing bad or painful will happen, which is true, then you're missing the source of the joy that is spoken about in these verses. It's not just a joy that comes from the absence of pain or painful circumstances. Look at verse 19. God says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The joy doesn't come from the absence of painful circumstances. The joy comes from the presence of God. Joy comes from His presence, which His presence is with us and identified with us in the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus walked this earth, his body was susceptible to pain and susceptible to death. But his glorified body today, that we can't see because he's in the unseen realm, but his glorified body today is not susceptible to pain. It's not susceptible to death. It's 
joy that comes from Christ, and not only joy that comes from Him, but His body today gives us the pattern of what our body and life will look like in this new heavens and world. Eternal, pervasive, continuous joy and delight. C.S. Lewis says it this way. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to, or even into, the thing that has been. They are not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. What he's saying there is that Jesus is joy. Jesus is joy. Not the absence of painful circumstances. The person of Christ is joy. So what that means for you today, in the midst of your pain, The response to pain is not, I'm experiencing a ton of pain, and this hurts me. And I just got a grin and bear it, and maybe find some pleasure in medicine. Now, I'm speaking to every person in this room. When pain hits and it's deep, you know, you know the temptation to want to just meditate, to numb it. Like that's what pleasure is. This hurts so much, I just, I just need medication, and pleasure is the medication. And that doesn't medicate. If it does, when it wears off, it's worse. Here's an incredibly important distinction that you must get hold of. Joy is never in your power, but pleasure often is. Let me say that again. Joy is never in your power, but pleasure often is. Understand what that means? That when you can pursue and capture pleasure, that's in your power. Or you can pursue and capture pleasure as a way to cope with pain. That's in your power. But joy Joy is in the power of Jesus. Joy is in the person of Jesus. And it can only be received from Jesus. And so here's the question I would ask. Here's the question I would ask. Does your joy, if you were to reflect on when you have joy in life, does your joy come from the absence of painful circumstances? Or does your joy come from pursuing and capturing some form of pleasure? Or does your joy come from Jesus? Because he alone is the only human being in our universe right now who has eternal, pervasive, continuous joy and delight. And it's yours by faith. It's yours through your relationship. What kind of hope is an anchor for your soul? The hope of pain eclipsed by joy. But second, it's the hope of frustration eclipsed by fruitfulness. 
Look at verse 21. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards to eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. And to verse 22 to 23. My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain. Now, the context of this book of Isaiah that we're coming to the end of was the context of God's people, because of their sin, being sent into exile. Foreign nations came and invaded, took them away. And then when, when God's people, when Israel would plant vineyards, these nations would just destroy their vineyards. Or they would just take all the harvest, all the fruit for themselves. In other words, God's people didn't get to enjoy the fruit of their work. It was always taken or destroyed. Incredibly frustrated. Because of sin, they could not enjoy the fruit of their work. And the same is true today. Because of sin, work can be incredibly frustrating. Think about your work. Think about how often work is frustrating. I would probably argue daily to some degree. Something doesn't go as it should. Work is incredibly frustrating. The question is why? Why is work so frustrating? Well, sin not only affects personal and private life, but it affects public, social life, including work itself. Work in Genesis 1 and 2 before sin was deeply satisfying, deeply gratifying, deeply fulfilling. But when sin entered the world in Genesis 3, work became incredibly frustrating, incredibly painful. Genesis 3, 17 to 18. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. Verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Because of sin, work became frustrating. It became fruitless. You say, now what do we mean by fruitless? I understand the frustration of work, but if we say work is fruitless, what do we mean by that? Here's what it means. You will always be able to envision in your work, whatever it may be, more than you are actually able to accomplish. That's what it means that work is both frustrating and fruitless. You'll always envision more than you can actually accomplish. And you experience that week to week. Whether it's the work in a corporation, whether it's the work in a classroom with students, whether it's the work of parenting, you envision more than you can ever accomplish. And here's why. It's for two reasons. Number one, lack of ability. We don't accomplish as much as we envision because of lack of ability. You, in your work, may envision a skill set that you want to get to, uh, a product that you want to produce at a certain level, uh, whatever it may be, you see that and you can't actually get there. And here's what comes out of it. When you look at somebody else doing the same work better than you are. When you look at a teacher that seems to be achieving the goals that you want, the aspirations that you, have, you want, better than you. Or when you see somebody selling at a much more rapid pace than you, 
And it's frustrating because you say, I have these aspirations and I can't get there because of lack of ability. That's deeply frustrating. But it's not only that. You, you envision more than you accomplish, not just because of lack of ability, but the second is resistance from the environment around you. You may actually, in your work, actually get to a place where you become very satisfied with what you've done. When you knock it out of the park, you're very pleased. You, you had aspirations, and you actually get them. And there's something out of your control that sabotages your work. Deeply frustrating. Right? Deeply frustrating. You design this amazing structure or this amazing building. Beautiful design. And then it's turned over to the construction company. And they build it. And they mess it up. And it's not like you designed it. That's frustrating. Or you have this incredible plan that you put together. I mean, it's airtight. It is perfect. And you hand it over to the person that's supposed to execute it. And they don't execute it according to your plan. Out of your control. Deeply frustrating. Work becomes incredibly frustrating. In the midst of this frustration, where's the hope? Where's the hope when you find yourself deeply frustrated? Verse 23. They shall not labor in vain. Why? For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord. Or, that reads, for a seed blessed by the Lord. Now, who's the seed? Who's the offspring that's being spoken of here? Well, if you go all the way back to Genesis 3, there's two seeds that are introduced in Genesis 3 when sin enters the world. It's the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the woman continues through the covenant that God makes with Abraham in Genesis 17. It's the seed of the woman that gets run through the covenant God makes with Abraham, and then that gets fulfilled in Galatians chapter 3 in Jesus Christ. In other words, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the seed. He's the one that is blessed, and, and through him that blessing comes. And so when verse 23 reads, they shall not labor in vain, notice it's not because there will be nothing more that's frustrating, or because they won't have any more lack of ability. Although in the new heavens and the new earth we'll see that will be true. No, it's because of the blessing that comes through Jesus. It's through Jesus Christ that, that labor is not in vain. Without Jesus, your frustration with work and your fruitlessness at work will ping to one of two extremes. If Jesus is not in the picture, you'll go to one of two extremes. Either idealism, which says, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to make things right. I'm bringing justice to the world. I was talking with a, uh, he's the director of admission at RTS in Orlando. And we were talking with someone and, uh, you know, young person that had all these, like, aspirations and I'm going to go change the world. And, and this director who's now a little bit older, probably in his 40s, said, yeah, I took a course in Bible college called World Changing. 
He said, that was amazing. And then after college, I moved to D.C. as a pastor. And I got eaten for lunch. I got my teeth kicked in. Right? Idealism, right? Without Jesus, that's where we're running. That's one extreme. Here's the other extreme. Without Jesus, if you don't run to idealism, well, let me just say it this way. Typically, we'll run to idealism. Then once you get your teeth kicked in, what do I say? Then where do you think? Cynicism. Nothing changes. Nothing ever changes in this world. Just collect a paycheck so you can pay your bills and go on vacation every day. Those are the two extremes that we run to out of our frustration. Listen to what Genesis 3.18 says. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. That means, that's combating idealism. Yeah, these idealistic views of work, Genesis 3 18 says, ah, ah, hold on. Thorns and thistles are coming. Don't get too excited. But then listen to what it says. And you shall eat the plants of the field. Yes, thorns and thistles are going to come out of the ground, but guess what? Food's going to come out of the ground as well. And that combats cynicism. There is fruit, right? There is fruit to your work. But there's also incredible frustration. J.R. Tolkien, he's the author of the Lord of the Rings series, he wrote this little short story called Leaf by Nibble. Nibble was a painter in this story, and he chose that name for a reason, because his name meant to work in a fiddling or ineffective way. And so Nagel had this vision of a painting. In this vision, there was a leaf, and then multiple leaves, and a large tree, and then behind the tree was this beautiful landscape. This is what he envisioned on this painting. And so he got to work on this painting. And he didn't get very far. He just couldn't get very far on this painting. He didn't finish it. He didn't come close to finishing it. And there were two reasons. One is, he got stuck on drawing one leaf. He couldn't get quite right. His, his perfect vision of a leaf, he couldn't quite get it, and so he got stuck on drawing one leaf. The other reason he never finished the painting is because he had a kind heart. And so he was distracted by needs of neighbors and friends that would all pull away from his painting to go help them. And so by the end of his life, when death came, Right, he ended up dying, and before he died, he had a leaf. That's it. Hadn't finished the painting, hadn't even come close, and he was deeply frustrated. So in this short story, Nagel uh, dies, frustrated, because he never got to finish what he had envisioned, this beautiful picture, this beautiful painting. He's on the train, headed to the heavenly afterlife. And on this train, he's going along, and something catches his eye, and he looks, and there it is. There's the tree. His tree. And it's finished. And Tolkien tells this story because for Nagel, he had envisioned this painting or this tree, and he was never able to complete it. And he gets to heaven, and there it is complete. It was Tolkien's way of illustrating 1 Corinthians 15 58. 
in the Lord, in the resurrected Lord, your labor is never in vain. You may, in a lifetime, to use that illustration, you may only finish a leaf in your lifetime. You had visions for something grand, and all you could finish was a leaf. Maybe, maybe you actually accomplished a branch. But because Jesus has risen from the dead, and through faith in him, your work matters. What you do matters forever. It's not in vain because Jesus has risen from the dead. Our deepest aspirations in work, our deepest aspirations will come to complete fruition in God's future. I love how Pastor Tim Teller summarizes this. He says, there will be work in the paradise of the future, just like there was in the paradise of the past. Because God himself takes joy in his work. In that paradise, you will be useful in the lives of others to infinite degrees of joy and satisfaction. You will perform with all the skill you can imagine. Does your frustration with work lead you to the ideals or the extremes of idealism or cynicism? Or does your frustration with work lead you to Jesus? Who, because of his resurrection, gives you deep assurance that your labor, though it may seem very incomplete, is never ever in vain. What kind of hope is an anchor for your soul? It's the hope of pain eclipsed by joy. It's the hope in Christ. It's the hope of frustration eclipsed by fruitfulness in Christ. And finally, it's the hope of conflict eclipsed by oneness. Look at verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. This describes such oneness with Jesus Christ that he anticipates your need before you ask. This describes such oneness of will that when you speak, the very words you speak commend Christ to action. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more answers to prayer that are no or wait. Now we, in this world, between first and second coming of Christ, pray many prayers that receive those answers, don't we? No or wait. What verse 24 says is that the new heavens and the new earth, your desires will be Christ's desires, and Christ's desires will be perfectly your desires. Absolute oneness of will. And not only with Christ, but oneness in this created world. Verse 25. 
The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Natures are changed. Carnivores become herbivores. No more conflict, violence, hostility. Absolute oneness across the entire, entirety of the new heaven and the world. When we speak of new heavens and new earth like this, and we speak of a place where there's absolute oneness and no more conflict, I mean, how foreign is that? I mean, many of you that are married got in a fight in the car on the way to church this morning. I mean, that's not true. Everybody's like, that's a little nerve wracking. I don't want to talk about that. It's true. You yelled at your kids this morning. Your kids disrespected you. I mean, conflict is just, it is so normal what we experience. To think of the day when there's no conflict, we go, I, I can't even get my head around it. I can't unfathom that kind of, of oneness. Can't even fathom it. Why is this our daily experience? Why is conflict so much a part of our daily experience. Why well, go back to Genesis 3 again? Genesis 3 explains our world. It explains our relationships. It explains why things are difficult. Genesis 3, 16. This is God speaking to the woman. He says, your desire shall be for, or it can read contrary to, your husband. Your desire will be contrary to your husband, and, or it can say, but, he shall rule over you. Instant conflict in marriage. A marriage of harmony became a marriage of conflict. Husband and wife turned against each other. Allies became enemies. No oneness, conflict. There's this great story in 2 Chronicles 1. It tells the story of, of three enemies. Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who are basically preparing to attack God's people, to attack Judah. And so King Jehoshaphat prepares God's people, prepares Judah to fight. They're getting ready to fight. They're about to get attacked. But they never had to fight. Because what happened is, Ammon and Moab turned on Mount Seir and destroyed Mount Seir, and then Ammon and Moab turned against each other and destroyed one another. These allies that were united against God's people turned on each other and began attacking and destroying each other. Isn't that so often what happens in relationships? Marriage? Family? Work partnerships? You know, allies become enemies. And what's striking about this is that the one relationship in Genesis 3, the primary relationship that is set in hostility and conflict, is described in Genesis 3.15. When God says, I will put enmity, that word means hostility or conflict, between you, serpent, 
and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. This is hostility and conflict between seed of the woman and seed of the serpent, between Satan and between Jesus. This is the controlling narrative of conflict that starts in Genesis 3 and runs all the way through to the present. This is the conflicting relationship under which all of your conflict operates. And so in marriage, two allies will turn and become enemies. You already have an enemy. That's what Genesis 3.15 is talking about. You have an enemy. His name is Satan. And he hates marriage. He hates the church. He desires nothing more than to turn marriages on themselves, churches on themselves, small Christian communities on themselves, and sit back and watch the sabotage. Watch the carnage. It's like, you ever watch a football game or a basketball game? And a fight breaks out on the sideline side between two teammates on the same team. You go, oh my goodness, this team is coming apart. And there's an enemy on the opposite side of the field. There's already an enemy, right? And now we're turning on each other and devouring each other. So if this conflicting, hostile relationship between Jesus and Satan, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, is the controlling narrative of history, then what's the outcome of that conflict? Well, it was announced in Genesis 3. It says, He, speaking of Jesus, shall bruise your head, serpent, and you, serpent, shall bruise his heel. Jesus was bruised on the cross, but through his work on the cross, he crushed the head of serpent. He crushed him. He defeated him. Defeated death. And in that victory, our relationships have hope of oneness and not conflict. So how do you deal with the presence of conflict in your relationships today? How do you deal with the presence of conflict? I want you right now to think about a relationship where you have conflict. How do you tend to deal with that conflict? Conflict is a tool. In the hands of Christ, conflict is a tool that brings about oneness. In the hands of Satan, conflict is a tool that brings about division. Think about a tool. Think about a screwdriver, a saw, a hammer. Right? A, a tool is not an end to itself. I don't think any of you I hope not, because this might offend you. But I don't think any of you put your hammer or your screwdriver on your mantle in your den for display as a beautiful decoration. I hope not. What do you put on your mantle in your den? Something beautiful that may have been created through the use of a screwdriver or a hammer or a tool of some sort. It's the same way in your relationships. Conflict is a tool. And it's a tool in the hands of Jesus to bring about beautiful oneness. 
So that beautiful alignment is on display. But conflict is the tool that Christ uses to bring about that oneness. And so here's where I would leave it. Don't let conflict be the evidence of division or incompatibility in your relationship. Let me say that again. Don't let conflict be the evidence of division or incompatibility in your relationship. Let conflict be the evidence of oneness that Christ is creating in your relationship through the tool of conflict. Several weeks ago, I was on a fishing trip down the Rodman River, a largemouth bass fishing trip. Ended up catching a seven and a half pounder. It's a good day. But we're in the boat with a guy, and it was a windy day. And so the guy was trying to get the boat, you know, about so many feet offshore. We were fishing the shore, and he turned it sideways. We had three people on the boat, so we all passed. And and it was a windy day, and so it was really blowing the boat. So he, he tossed an anchor out, and the wind was strong enough that the, the anchor wasn't even holding. So the boat would keep going towards shore and turning, and, and we, were, we were frustrated, but the, the, the guy was incredibly frustrated. And he expressed that frustration in a series of very colorful words. The anchor wasn't holding. Winds are always blowing in life. Sometimes you feel like you're in a hurricane. Sometimes maybe it's just the strong wind from a thunderstorm. But if you've lived long enough, long enough in this life, you know that the winds are always blowing. There is only one anchor. There's only one anchor that will hold. The absence of pain is not an anchor that will hold. The absence of frustration at work is not an anchor that will hold. The absence of conflict in your relationships is not an anchor that will hold. The only anchor that will hold is Jesus Christ. And the new heaven and the new earth that He is creating. Where pain will be eclipsed by peace, frustration will be eclipsed by fruitfulness, and conflict will be eclipsed by love. We need an anchor. When you confess the anchors that we have tried to throw overboard that just don't work, we seem to think that if we can just get free from the painful circumstance, that we'll be okay. Or that if we can 
Just have a week at work that's not frustrating or fruitless will be okay. Or that if we can just have a day or an evening where we don't fight with somebody, we'll be okay. Father, none of those things are holy. Your son, Jesus Christ, is the only anchor that will hold. Father, would you draw us by your spirit to your son, Jesus, that we would experience now in part what he promises he is creating in new heavens and new earth. That day that is coming, when we will experience eternal, pervasive, continuous joy. That day that is coming, when our work will bring about perfect fulfillment and fruitfulness. And that day when we will never fight again in a relationship. But Father, we don't want to just sit here and, and look off in the future, hoping that day comes. We want to experience that now by your Spirit in Christ. And so, Father, would you bring healing to relationships in this room? There are some marriages and friendships that are in deep conflict that needs your healing. Father, would you make work, though it will always have frustration to it, may you make it fruitful. And Father, for those that are in deeply painful circumstances, may you bring a joy they can't explain, a joy that comes from you. And as we sing now, would you fill our hearts with faith and with hope? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.